So hello and welcome back to the Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jassani. And to remind you then, today is part two of our two-part series on feline lower urinary tract disease and block cats. Uh, We're joined by Dr. Roseanne Jepson, who's a lecturer in internal medicine, and by Don Barfield, who's a lecturer in emergency and critical care. And we also have some comments made by Nicola Culendro, who's a lecturer in small animal surgery, and who's taking part in these podcasts in absentia. So let's kickstart part two of these podcasts by me asking you this question, Roseanne. Whenever I'm presented with a blocked cat, I always like to give them intravenous antibiotics pretty soon after presentation. What do you think about that? Shailen, I'd say you were a bad man. <laughs> clearly, 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 I don't do that. But, but let's assume I did. What would you tell me about that position well, in life? I think the, the bottom line, Jalen, is that um, I feel like I'm <laughs> that, that, that only about two percent of young cats that are showing lower urinary tract signs. So these are cats under the age of sort of seven or, or six or seven are going to have a urinary tract infection. Um, and so antibiotics are not necessary in the vast majority of these patients. Getting a urine sample and submitting it for culture, fine. Um, the chances of you getting a positive culture at the point when you're and blocking the cat um, are very, very low. Um, if I was going to do a culture at any point, it would be at the point where I was removing said urinary catheter after it had been in for a period of time. And, I, and again, I wouldn't necessarily be starting antibiotics, but I'd just want to, hoping that I'd put that catheter in in as a sterile manner as I could. Um, but I'd just want to, um, I could check for a, a urinary tract infection that essentially um, we had caused during the process of having that catheter in place. Um, it's much more common for old cats to get urinary tract infections, but actually, typically, they don't show any lower urinary tract signs at all. So um, most cats, no need for antibiotics at the point of unblocking them. Okay, good. Um, <clears throat> and then the other question I had was, in terms of do we always actually um, need to leave a urethral catheter in situ in blocked male cats? Do you have any kind of rules of thumb about, well, I suppose, do you always leave one in? And if you don't, when might you not leave one in? It's a bit of a leading question. <laughs> um, I think it's an excellent question because, again, like with everything else, I'm not sure there's uh, any evidence to say what you should do in these situations. I suppose that uh, I think if you're going to be bothered to uh, put a catheter in, then maybe you should make sure that, uh, that you know, that you, you uh, allow the cat some time to sort of recover, maybe the urethra to recover as, as well. But it depends if there's like a mucoid plug, as, as, as Roseanne was saying earlier. You know, do you need to do that? Is, is there any problem with urethra apart from like just a bit of mucus at, at the end? Um, I think that what I'd do if it's hemorrhagic, if the urine looks a bit manky, nasty, there's large sediment in there, um, to uh, to definitely sort of uh, um, uh, flush that out with some with some uh, saline or CSL and, and uh, um, leave a catheter in until the urine starts to look less hemorrhagic and more like normal urine. And whether that's a day or two days, I, I don't I don't know. But uh, leave it in there for a certain period of time. But but uh, I think an excellent point about the mucus plug. Who, who knows, uh, having a catheter in will definitely cause some irritation to the urethra, but then again, if it's been spasming for a day, then maybe it needs some time to, to, uh, um, to, to, to relax. 
Yeah, I, th- I agree with you, Dom. It's a, it's a difficult call to make, and I think to some extent it's also going to depend on the history and the presentation of that cat as well and how convinced you were to start with that it absolutely was obstructed. I can mm. see that maybe a cat that presented to me with slightly milder um, clinical signs where I had some index of concern and I felt I did need to at least try to catheterize the cat, but actually the catheter slips in without much of a problem. In that scenario, I might say, well, you know what, I think I'm going to leave this cat. I'm not 100% convinced that it's mm. absolutely not been urinating. I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt, monitor it for 24 hours. I can always put one in if I need to. So it's a kind of um, multifactorial decision-making process based on history, this presentation, including you know, basically how sick the cat is as well. Obviously, Absolutely. if it's got severe azotemia, etc., then you can't be risking it not being able to to diuries afterwards and so on. So, but so I guess I mean I, I think my position is very similar. I think we. I won't necessarily say we need to leave a catheter in all these cases. I think there are some that we would not leave a catheter in. I think that's completely reasonable. I only bring it up in a way because years ago we used to leave them in almost regardless of who the cat was, and I think that position is, has shifted, um, which I think has shifted for the better, really. And there, there are some cases where we've not left one in, and you're like, oh, I have to go and put one in now. Um, but, hey, you know, that's that. Okay, um, the other thing I guess I want to ask you is, let's say we have a first episode of obstruction what do you think about diagnostic imaging at a first episode of obstruction for these cases? Um, Roseanne, go first. <laughs> so um, if we think this cat's definitively uh, obstructed, um, but the um, catheter passes very easily, so we've got a high index of suspicion for urethral spasm, then no, not necessarily. Um, if I have any difficulties passing the ure- urethral catheter, then yes, I probably would. If I have any concern that there might be some degree of chronicity in this case, if it's had an episode or even clinical signs that have been going on for a while, then I might be more inclined to do some, some imaging for a completely clean case um, where we think it fits the bill of being a young male cat, um, relatively acute onset clinical signs, catheter passes easily, then... No, not necessarily. Obviously, finances um, from the client are going to pay play a big role as well when we make these decisions. Um, and um, before I, before I get Dom to comment on that, um, we're, we're sending the urine off. I know it's nothing to do with diagnostic imaging, but anyway. <laughs> It just came to me whilst you were talking. I, I, I would, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. having passed the catheter, um, even though well, I've just told, even though I've just, uh, even though I've just told everybody that the chances of the cat having a urinary tract infection are going to be very, very low. I guess uh, I, I'd still like to at least have a look at that urine in house. So um, get a quick SG, um, a sediment exam, and do a quick dipstick on it, um, even if you don't submit it uh, ultimately. And stone crystals that you might see, do they impact? We're we going to talk later on about the. Men- management of these cases at discharge so they're they're not really going to impact hugely on me i don't know what dom feels on this but um no i certainly make note of them but um yeah they're not going to so don let me ask you a different question but it's sort of getting back to the imaging question um one of the arguments maybe for doing imaging on these cases even if it's their first episode is what if they have a sufficient number of stones that they they need surgical intervention right do you think that's a an argument is it a valid argument is it relatively unheard of um, so I, I, I suppose that, um, you know, everything's sort of maybe a, a risk and cost sort of benefit sort of ratio. And I suppose what, you know, as Roseanne said, you know, if there's difficulty passing a catheter, maybe that might sort of uh, 
um, maker want to sort of take imaging uh, of the of the urinary tract. I suppose you, you know no one's going to say that it's wrong. I suppose that's probably the, the bottom line. If you, as long as you include the whole urinary tract, and, and I, you know, then that means the whole urethra as, as well. So yeah, that's a really good point. Absolutely. If I'm going to bother to do any imaging, <laughs> well, I love this mutual, mutual. <laughs> uh, no, uh, uh, the whole urethra. So I mean, a full retrograde urethra cystogram. Yeah. I want to see the urethra. No point in just imaging the bladder. Yeah. So if you're going to do it, you might as well do it. Well, and and I suppose that that's about it. And, and I don't, I don't. No one can criticise you for doing that. Um, and I suppose then you know, no, you know, and maybe someone needs to look into what are the percentages of these cats having something else, having stones um, in in them, for us to get a handle on on the the impact that imaging has. And but you would do it on the if they reappeared two months later. For sure. Okay, um, Dom, I'm aware that you have to go quite soon. So before I let you go, could you just summarise for us um, the post-catheterisation? So we've done the resuscitation, we've addressed hyperkalemia, we've sedated or anaesthetised or gone from sedation to anaesthesia, done our catheterisation. Let's assume that's gone well. We've left it in for one to two days. The urine has been draining well. Tell me about that 48-hour period after we've placed our catheter. What are the things that people need to be cognizant of in that post-catheterisation management period? And then you can go. Okay. Well, I think what you're alluding to, Ted and Mady, is uh, like the post-obstructional diuresis that, that we tend to see. And I, I think that uh, that um, one, one of your patients had something ridiculous, like exactly, 35 yeah. mils per kilo um, per hour, like it was producing that much urine. So I suppose we need to keep a handle on how much urine the cat is producing and probably match the in sort of with that. Um, you can get into an argument of whether you're driving that sort of urine production, um, but I suppose in the immediate period then I'll you're probably... I'll ask about that once <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're probably you're probably not. You know, it's a real thing because you're following what's gone, so you're not 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 driving it. So when does it come a point when you drive it? Okay, um, I suppose what we need to do is monitor the urine production. Um, so we have a closed system, which is important, I think, for patient comfort. I know that sometimes people just put a catheter in and let it drip, and they don't like it getting tangled around with the fluid line or that sort of caper. Um, I think that. You need to have a closed system, you know, and that's what we should do with these with these. Uh, I mean, we um, we don't we don't struggle because we use obviously sort of bespoke systems, right? That are widely available and not very expensive. Mm. When in the old days, people used to use you know fluid bags and empty yeah. the fluid and all that. And I still find people that still do, and yeah. you tell them they can buy one. They're like, oh, cool, I'll go and buy one. Um, but my perception is that I mean, I had some ticks and tips on how to try to make those old systems work better, and we used to teach those on courses and stuff because like, well, people were struggling. But my perception is that the systems we use now, we don't really... We might struggle with the catheter itself. That's another conversation. But the drainage system, I think it's pretty... Yeah. It works well. No? Yeah, absolutely. Really absolutely. And I think that probably from what has gone on before you know people are, are tainted by their own experience and probably mm. that's the way they were told so that's what they do and and um and no, i absolutely agree that a closed system is is what we should all be doing and there are systems available that are quite easy to use and not much money yeah. okay so fluid therapy match a post-obstructive diuresis mm. at some point you need to start weaning them off and and for whatever reason if you're concerned about what's in what's out i suppose you you've got the cat there you can weigh the cat and see yeah see let's what's, not forget there's a patient yeah <laughs> <laughs> There's a patient, so we can monitor, you know, start, find out if they've actually lost weight or, or, or not. But I suppose, uh, yeah, keeping them uh, with with fluids going on and, and matching what they're sort of producing would be ideal. And other highlights of the, um, the two days, the day, two days after catheterization in terms of management? 
Um, I suppose uh, you need to you know, be cognizant of some sort of analgesia as, as well for, for the first sort of um, couple of days. Um, I, you know, post-obstructional diuresis, maybe they actually can get hypokalemic if they're, if they're not eating as well. So maybe some sort of, uh, ironically, some potassium supplementation mm. might be important. Making sure they're doing the other normal things so they can, should still be able to eat and drink and sort themselves out in that respect. And they should really you know, turn around relatively quickly and want to be a normal cat. Cool. So um, I'm going to ask you one more question, then, or two questions, then you can definitely go. The first is easy. Do you care what you... We know that a lot of these cats don't eat, right, in this period, but let's say they were going to. Do you care what you feed them in the day or two after catheterization or not so much? Um, I, again, I feel a bit conscious having a medic sitting next to me, but... Uh, <laughs> I told you, we're only cats, once you've gone. I think if it I, makes you feel any better, Dom, I don't care what you feed them in the first 24, 48 hours. <laughs> that's but that's all of us, yeah. To, to be honest, Shayla, I think if a cat eats in the hospital, it's awesome. So. <laughs> no, right, you know this. It is. <laughs> it's just because you see, you know, like, again, it's one of these old things, but when I hear, when I hear of people trying to get these cats to eat a urinary diet or something, I'm like, they don't eat anyway, so just yeah, you know, yeah. stop, stop worrying, but try and tempt them anyway. And then the other thing I was going to ask you, which is a more serious question, and um, again, Roseanne, feel free to chip in here, but we, we said at the beginning no non-steroidals, right, to these cats when they present. When, if at all, are you going to be considering their use? Because let's not pretend like non-steroidals are rubbish drugs and they're not good, right? I mean, they have a lot of, there are a lot of good to them, right? So are these cats going to get some at any point or not? Um, I, I think it's probably dependent on how you know, long their, their renal hit was for, um, how the cat has responded, whether they are eating and drinking, whether we're going to send this sort of cat home with owners that are going to be around to watch the cat and, and how you sort of inform your client. Um, about the sort of side effects of of, um, of non steroidals, uh, I, I I think I'm, I'm quite cautious with them. Um, so I think some analgesia would be good. So you know you can send them home on buprenorphine or things like that. Um, I have no. Uh, per se, you know, veto on non steroidals, but I think that you'd have to pick who you're sending that home with and make sure they have very clear instructions. Because I think, you know, probably, you know, it's talk, you know hearing myself talk about this is I'm very defensive with a lot of things that, that we do, but... Uh, it's because um, I'm <laughs> No, but uh, <laughs> as in, you know, more of a defensive sort <laughs> of practice. But, yeah, no, analgesia is important. But then again, you know, what's the worst that can happen with a non-steroidal? And I think it's probably not in the immediate time. Obviously, you know, it should be well hydrated, John fluids, good enough renal perfusion. So hopefully we're not worried about the effects of that. But, you know, if the cat goes home, stops eating, stops drinking, gets reobstructed that we hadn't noticed for a stain, mm. to keep on giving it Medicam or, sorry, I shouldn't say whatever drug should I, keep on giving it, you know, any sort of other, non-steroid, other, other trade name, non-steroidals that are available, like Loxicam, Carpraven, whatever. <laughs> you know, if people still give it the non-steroidal, then that's where I think, you can get serious, serious problems. So I suppose that not really so much, not too bothered about it in the hospital okay. or with, you know, under clear yeah. circumstances. But I think you can go, it can go, you know. So maybe at time of discharge, but on an individual cat basis? Mm. Mm, what's the <laughs> what about you, Rizal? Do you, do you, do you? 
In the, in the more in the cr- more chronic patients that I guess we typically would see in medicine, where we're dealing with more the feline lower urinary tract disease, then as you say, providing they're adequately hydrated and. Um, uh, we're happy that they're not azotemic, we've got no residual concerns regarding their renal function, then then I certainly have used them. And um, cats can be a lot more comfortable once they start receiving them. But it is, as Dom says, very much on that individual um, cat basis. Um, and I guess those that group of cats, I'm probably thinking that we're further down the line than the first 24, 48 hours when we're mm. using them um, in that period of time. I guess I personally would stick with the opioids at that point um, but I think the further we get away um, from that point of obstruction the happier I, are, I am that they're not going to re-obstruct imminently um, and, and the happier I might be to use them. Okay cool um, you need to go. Sorry. Did you have anything else you wanted to impart on us before you left? Um, I think just fluids. <laughs> Give them fluids. <laughs> Give them fluids I think you know and, and, and uh, as said like set yourself up to succeed and if you're struggling and you're just giving it some diazepam or you think they're moribund enough to put a catheter in you know they're not you know you need to stabilize them first and make sure you're you're happy with them cardiovascularly before you monkey around with them um and and you know though they're a common thing i've definitely seen cats uh, you know seizure from giving too much sort of insulin or die from not being stable and giving you know sedatives anesthetic mm-hmm. agents um, so I you know I, I think that these are patients that we shouldn't lose you know in mm-hmm. in, in general so and I think that um, <clears throat> we combine sort of have a a, a collective approach and I'm not saying that um, we're necessarily perfect or don't drop the ball on on anything but I but I think you know and, and interestingly enough, I suppose not not only ourselves, but most of the ECC people that I've spoken to about block cats, you know, might differ from our treatment of other things, but we all got a pretty similar approach to to block cats, and I think that's probably comforting. In, no, I agree. That's way. true. I, I definitely pull that one out quite often because you, you know I think one of the reasons I like the, I like this topic is that you hear a lot of things when you teach people in practice, and you hear a lot of opinions and different approaches and. And I guess my bottom line with things like this is always, well, we know our survival for these cats in these acute short-term stents is virtually 100% or 100%, right? I can't remember losing a block cat acutely for, well, ever. But I know some have been lost. And so my question is always, well, is that just fortune and luck or actually is it because of a different management approach? So until someone provides us with an evidence base that's robust that says another approach is better practice... I guess we're not, <laughs> we're not going to do something different, right? Because our survival rates for this, in these acute settings are, are you know, yeah. 100%, right? So, and, and hopefully, you know, I know that the influence out there on, uh, you know, my uh, my first boss told me about his boss's, uh, you know, way to unblock cats, and I won't, uh, <laughs> I won't, expo- <laughs> I won't share that uh, to, the, to the listeners. But, but uh, you know, everyone has an approach that they've done and things are successful, and I suppose they continue to do that. But we, we always want to strive to do the best thing that, that we can. I think that's the idea. You know, nothing's – I'm not saying that, uh, that whatever we're doing now is going to – stand the test of time we're going to be doing it in 30 years there might be uh, another another you know sure. you know treatment modality that's available to us but at well, the moment there's, yeah, there's a couple of things the, yeah. i guess the other thing we should say is that um you know we, we always do these sort of podcasts we talk about actual clinical scenarios and we know that there's the undercurrent of finances and equipment right and those are two things that are given and we don't ever mean to talk like everybody has necessarily all the resources that we do 
Um, and so there might be there might be ways in which you have to nuance your practice or change what you do to meet your individual circumstances. And again, I don't think we have the time to talk about ways you could sort of trim down what you're doing and all that kind of stuff because that's another another discussion for an hour. But so I think we just need to say that we know that, right? And we're not sitting here going, yeah, well, yeah, you know, everyone can do what we do. But but it is about saying this is what I really like to try and do, and then how do I have to change it? Say so so good, good reason. Say <laughs> <So> good fluids. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Leave quietly. <laughs> Thank you for your time, mate, as well. No I'll um, Thank you very much. <laughs> harass Roseanne the remainder. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So um, <clears throat> one of the things that I put to Nicola, actually, was that if Dom, now that he's gone, we can say, you know, he, can, he failed to catheterize this cat. Um, he did not. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, um, what, what, are, what are his options going to be? And Nicola says, um, so firstly, she said, there are a few reasons as to why it can fail. There may be significant swelling or spasm, a physical obstruction such as a stone or trauma to the urethra caused by catheterization, um, including a urethral tear. In these cats, we need to provide a way of urinary diversion to allow the electrolytes and azotemia to resolve. If the cat is stable, it helps to perform a retrograde study initially to identify the area of obstruction or tear. If the cat is not stable, you can go straight to placing a cystostomy tube using a Foley catheter. Um, she said that one of the tips is to cut the tip off the Foley catheter without actually uh, damaging the balloon, obviously. Um, and when the cat is stable, then you can then perform a contrast study in an anti-grade direction by putting contrast down that cystostomy tube. And in addition, if it's still not possible to catheterize the cat, you can place a hydrophilic guide wire down the Foley catheter and hopefully it should exit the penis. Um, you can then thread a catheter over the top of the guide wire. And even if you place a catheter at this stage, remember to leave the cystostomy tube in for over 10 days to reduce the chances of your abdomen when you remove it. So she's basically provided us a reason for why you might fail with your catheterization and then the kind of um, approach to what you might do. Now, again, one of the questions I guess we have is, you know, what do you have access to in your environment? And what, what would you say, like if I was in practice and I had a blocked cat and I had struggled and I couldn't catheterize this cat and I'd done a cysto, I still couldn't catheterize this cat, and I'm in practice. What do you think I should be doing now? I mean, I guess um, we're going back to the cystocentesis question almost at this point, aren't we? I think you need to be confident that you've optimised your chances, as we've said. So um, be happy that um, the patient was adequately resuscitated, it was anaesthetised whilst you were trying. Um, maybe you've got a colleague who's going to be able to come and give you a hand as well. Um, I think some of the things which Nicola mentioned previously that can really help you are things like making sure that you've fully straightened out the prep use. Um, I think she you mentioned using Alice tissue forceps etc I've also seen people actually placing two sutures on either side so that you can really try to make sure ouch. that it's straight yeah, <laughs> yeah. ouch, ouch. Uh, it, it's definitely something I've yeah. seen that and have heard that helps people to catheterize them in that scenario if you've got nobody else to help you then I think that's one of the situations where you are going to have to decompress the bladder and make that decision um, I think your retrograde study at that point is going to be important because as we've said making sure that there is not a, an, a, um, a physical reason for that obstruction, so a stone that's that's sitting there that where you're you're not being able to pass the catheter through. 
I would also just add that even if you can pass a urinary catheter, it doesn't always mean that there aren't stones within the urethra, mm. um, little tiny stones, and you don't always feel them. Um, and I think that's something which we often forget. Um, so it's another reason for considering doing those imaging studies at an earlier rather than later time point. Um, and then I guess we've got people like Dom who are on the other end of the phone um, to give us advice as and when we need it. Um, so, I mean, I guess my perception is that most of the people... Well, actually, I can't really say that because I suppose we wouldn't be seeing them as referrals if they had done this, but, you know, that we, we don't tend to see people placing tube cystostomies in sort of normal, normal first opinion practice very much, right? So we would be saying if you can't catheterize, sure, you may have done a decompressor cysto and it's still maybe still not managed to catheterize... You know, to facilitate the practicalities, I mean, we know that here we sort of have an ECC service 24 hours a day, et cetera, but people won't necessarily be near us to refer to us. Yeah. Um, but, you know, because I guess one of the things that we don't want people to do, do two or three episodes of Cisto to just keep buying time without some kind of definitive plan, right? No, absolutely. Um, and I guess that's assuming, you know, that your imaging studies, as far as you're concerned, are, are unremarkable. And maybe you've got a local referral centre that would take a look at those radiographs mm. and those images for you just to double-check, um, you know, I'm, you know, as... as happy as the next person to get somebody else to review my images even if it's just another colleague just to double check that there's not something there that that i'm missing um, and a reason why i'm not able to catheterize or um you know in any scenario that's that i don't think we should be um worried about doing that that's what colleagues are there for um and and then yeah absolutely you're going to need a plan um and if we have got a, a stone or a stricture potentially if this is a cat that's had been catheterized previously obviously stricter formation is something that we might worry about and in that scenario we probably want to be having a chat with um somebody who's going to think about doing one of the um definitive surgical procedures so a perineal urethrostomy potentially and um, um i guess the um so i guess my own experience of the cases that we see as referrals is that in, in a significant proportion, we succeed in catheterizing yeah. when they haven't been done in, in practice. And again, that's not a, oh, we're better than you type of thing. It's just one of those things. But then there are some where we don't. But I, I would think my own experience is that they're a much smaller percentage. Um, what I'm not aware of, because we tend to not then follow them up beyond <laughs> if we've transferred them, uh, is what necessarily then happens to the ones that we did not succeed in catheterizing on our service at at presentation but we typically do but if we don't i'm not sure how many of those turned out to need surgical intervention then or you know I, that's the bit that i i don't have data on really um, no um i don't think i have data on it either shayla and i suspect that those have have imaging and then end up in the surgery department rather than in the medicine <laughs> so department we so we need nicola <laughs> i think to help us out at, at this point um uh, because by the time we see them we're normally happy that we've got a catheter or, or we've got a good yeah. reason for why we've not been able to place the catheter. Okay, cool. So um, there's a few things left to, to just chat about. The, the first one was this cat that we were talking to Dom about, and um, we're now going to send this cat home, okay? So plus or minus non-steroidals, we had that conversation. Um, what sort of management should we be sending this cat home on? Well, 
let's assume that this is its first episode sure. and we'll assume that it was just a mucoid plug that was causing the obstruction rather than anything else going on. Um, to me, the important things at that point are sending um, the client home, um, having had a good discussion with them about what the clinical signs for urethral obstruction are and actually making them aware that unfortunately this is a condition that we quite frequently see recurrences of. So it's really important um, client education. Um, in terms of actual management for the cat, uh, my number one recommendation would be a wet diet. So um, trying to get these cats to drink plenty. So that might be introducing, for example, water fountains, um, just making sure that they have plenty of um, uh, water bowls available for them and that they have um, adequate um, uh, um, litter trays if they're a cat that normally uses a litter tray in the house they have free access to going outside um, I'm not um, necessarily going to change the diet of these cats um, as I said number one is just that it's a wet diet um, and probably that's all I'm going to do at, at, the, at the outset if this is just a first episode I think one of the one of the big problems that we have um, is that there are a number of different medications that people um, have tried. Um, we don't necessarily have a huge amount of evidence whether or not they're beneficial in terms of reducing episodes. Um, so examples would be glycosaminoglycans. Um, so I don't have any... Um, knowledge that they're likely to cause an adverse effect but the studies that have been done haven't really shown any significant improvement in terms of um, uh, recovery from a first episode of um, feline lower urinary tract disease clinical signs or in terms of reducing recurrence of episodes um, but you know it's certainly something which a lot of people will prescribe um, and if owners perceive a benefit then, then I don't have a problem with them using them um, and then I guess there are all the things to do with um, multimodal environmental enrichment which well we laugh at them but I think actually I was it, laughing because I thought you were going to say something else not, not okay. that, that bit, I don't laugh at uh, well, but you're so going to say I something think... else which I'm going to talk to you Okay, um, I, I think they are they are important. Mm. So a lot of the cats, not necessarily the cats that come into us obstructed, but the cats that are going through the feline lower urinary tract or idiopathic lower urinary tract signs, and which are potentially predisposed to becoming obstructed, we do know that there's a kind of stress component mm. to this. So um, unfortunately, sometimes the you know even with the best will in the world, the owners are perhaps not able to do more than they already are. Mm. Um, but it's things like making sure they have um, high up places to go to trying to reduce the stress with multiple cat households all of that kind of thing it's not going to stop cats becoming obstructed but uh, we know that there's a feed in of the sort of a, yeah. a stress component for these cats absolutely <clears throat> the thing that um that i was chuckling about um was was i wanted to talk to you about the various drugs that um maybe not in this cat that's just going home after its first episode but they do sometimes get called on down the line um yeah if you could sort of just tell us about that a little bit that would be great yeah so so i guess that the cats that are having recurrent episodes and particularly where we think there's urethral spasm as a component of the original obstruction then um, we definitely consider using spasmolytics um so a combination usually of prazosin and, and dantrolene um so prazosin being an alpha blocker and um, dantrolene being our um uh, skeletal muscle relaxant um and th those are drugs which I would probably typically use in 
a relatively short-term period. So um, I might start the cat on those whilst it's catheterized if this was um, a, a sort of recurrent episode and urethral spasm was felt to be a component at the starting at the lower end of the dose range um, and then typically perhaps leaving those cats on that combination for a, a few weeks afterwards. But they're not necessarily drugs that I would leave them on long term. There, there are reports in the literature of using... Um, uh, drugs such as amitriptyline um, um, but actually again studies um, failed to show um, that they have a significant impact in the short term although there's some indication that potentially long term there may be benefit but the, the, the studies that are out there are, are not sort of really definitive but again if, if we've got a cat that is having recurrent episodes and we do see these cats and we really start to struggle in terms of the number of episodes that they're having um then then that's something that we might consider yeah um and we see sometimes cats come on diazepam um yeah, so I wouldn't ad- administer diazepam to a cat. Um, we do very occasionally see idiosyncratic um, hepatotoxicity mm. reactions with diazepam. So personally, I avoid that and I wouldn't administer it. Um, what was the other one? Um, phenoxybenzamine? So phenoxybenzamine is another alpha blocker. Um, and um, so I've certainly used that um, in place of prazosin. Um I think there's a relatively recent study which um, suggests that may- maybe... Um, recurrence using prazosin is um, less than with um, phenoxybenzamine. Um, so in general, we, we use um, prazosin, but um, I've equally used phenoxybenzamine when prazosin was difficult to get hold of previously. And what's, um, what's your experience with sort of compliance? I mean, both, both client and cat in terms of having these medications? Is it something that, from your experience, people sort of seem to struggle with it or not much or...? Um, so, so I think in terms of the severity of clinical signs that these cats can present with, I think that's something which generates greater compliance, or at least I hope it does, when, when, when clients see how uncomfortable and what a big ordeal it's been mm. for, for their cats. So in terms of them going home, I think providing... The biggest thing is making sure that your client really understands what it is that you're trying to do with the medications. And um, my hope is always that if they fully understand um, and know why it is I want them to pill their cat um, and that I have a good reason for it um, that hopefully they're, they're going to be tolerant. As I've said with things like glycosaminoglycans because the evidence is kind of n- neither here nor there really at, at the moment if it was a cat that was very difficult to tablet you know is is the stress of being pilled once a day to get its glycosaminoglycan going to add to its chances of, of actually having a further episode of FLUTD well yeah potentially um, so in that scenario if we don't have good evidence then I'd be inclined to say well um, you know let's let's leave that one for the moment um, um, but so you feel that the evidence for, for the others for dentral and prasis is sufficient that if the cat was having a stress every day that it sounds you, like a terrible way yeah. to put it, was a price worth paying or, or not? Yes, but I guess I'm only ever going to be using those in the short term, the short so term. I would hope um, I would hope that those clients would, would um, want to work with me on that um, in that scenario. The longer term, I, I agree, um, it's going to be more challenging with these cats, um, but they're not medications that I would necessarily have them on long term. So. Okay, so this cat's going home after its first episode, we're saying increase moisture consumption yep. um, try and minimise stress yep. in the household probably that's about it for the first episode yep, absolutely. yeah absolutely Okay, and then if the cat comes back um, 
if we haven't done we haven't done diagnostic imaging, we're going to do some of that. We might have some other medical therapy options, and we'll, we're going to come on and talk about that in a minute. Um, do, do we have any idea in terms of data and what the kind of reported incidence of recurrence is for... Yeah, so studies studies suggest uh, there's been a number of studies that have been done, and I think recurrence rates are reported to be sort of anywhere between 30 to 40 to 55 percent of male cats um, will have a recurrence within the first six months of their first true obstructive episode. So recurrence is high, and I think um, that's it's really important that we make that clear to clients yeah. because they yeah. they need to know every time they go through one of these the ordeals of bringing their cat into the hospital unfortunately um it, you know with the best will in the world by the time we've provided fluid resuscitation we've seen them as an emergency we've provided analgesia yeah. we've deobstructed the cat placed a urinary catheter potentially had them in the hospital for 48 72 hours um it's not an inexpensive process and we we have to be aware of that for yeah, them definitely. yeah um, so we've basically said that there, there is essentially an escalation of investigations and management, I guess, and recurrent episodes, right? Yeah. I said already earlier on that in terms of the survival from an acute blockage uh, episode, that is virtually 100%, at least in our experience. But we know that some of these cats can go on and have these recurrent episodes, and, and we've talked about how we might escalate what we do there um so one of the questions that i put to nicola and again you know sort of find out what you have to say on the back end of me reading uh, what she said was you know when we come to talk about when do we need to think about surgical intervention for these cases and so she said there is no right answer as to when to intervene generally we recommend three episodes of obstruction before contemplating surgery but we can do it sooner if there are confounding factors such as no way of relieving the obstruction on the episode, a large urethral tear that does not respond to conservative management or financial concerns um, that I guess she means don't allow us to have repeated episodes of medical management. The decision of whether to perform surgery or not is a difficult one as there are obvious complications of any surgery and so the risk-benefit assessment must be taken into account. And then she goes on to say that a perineal urethrostomy is the most common surgery performed in block cats which removes the narrow area of the urethra in the penis and creates a large stoma. Um, if the obstructional tear is more proximal, you can consider a transpelvic or prepubic urethrostomy. Before I get you to comment, I should just say that one of the things that we didn't mention right at the beginning was that male cats have this kind of bend in their urethra. It goes around a corner, and that might be part of the reason or probably is part of the reason why they're more prone to obstruction and that when we were talking about um, you know, pulling the prepuce cordially to, is we're sort of saying you need to straighten that bend. And yeah. I must say, I've never resorted to Alice tissue force; it's all sutures and touch wood. I, I've succeeded, but um, but absolutely stretching that bend yeah. is, is an issue. And so she's saying that the most common surgical procedure is about actually removing that narrowing area off the urethra. So. Um, are you sort of pretty much in agreement with what Nicholas said about this? Or? Yeah, I think so, Shailen. Um, so three strikes is kind of the rule of thumb that I think I've tended to work with. I think most clients by that point are getting 
frustrated with the recurrence of the episodes, the fact that I'm not going to be able to guarantee to them that their cat's not going to have yet another episode and, and I can't tell them whether that's going to be in a month's time or a, or a year's time. Um, so I think that's the point where we kind of feel that we're starting to weigh up the cost, risk, benefit of putting them through a surgical procedure to mm. prevent them having these recurrent what can be. Um, although we've said, you know, we don't lose many of these cats um, there is always the potential that they become obstructed and if it's an outdoor cat it goes off somewhere mm-hmm. and it doesn't make it back home yeah. in time for it to come to see um, it, its vet so um, yeah and as Nicola says sometimes we make that decision sooner um, for, an, for a variety of different reasons um, you know I, I think I would normally discourage clients from having it done after just the first episode mm. um, but, but thereafter um, it's certainly something that we should be informing clients that this is a possibility even from that first episode um, because we know that a proportion of the cats do make it um, to the point where they need to have a PU. Um, And then I guess most depressingly, we know that some of these cats that have had surgical intervention um, have recurrence. Um, And Nicholas says on this, as a proportion of cats have underlying FLUTD, they may still develop low urinary tract signs. One study, um, and the author is Ruda, and it's in the Journal of Small Animal Practice in 2012. Uh, One study found that of the cats alive more than six months after surgery, 10% had severe signs of FLUTD. However, 88% of owners felt their cats had a good quality of life post-op. did you take all that in and do you kind of like, is that, is that what you would sort of say as well? That we think that, yeah, there are risks um, in general. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I guess the bottom line, Shailen, is that we're, as you said, we're taking away the narrowest part of the penile urethra. We're not actually getting to the bottom of what yeah. this condition actually is for those cats that have the either the urethral spasm or the mucoid plug that, that forms um, because we sort of feel that this is a condition which is, as I've said before, sort of stress-linked, etc. And it's um, so that process is still going on within the cat. What we've done is we've dramatically reduced um, the chances of that cat becoming obstructed Mm. so we still need to think about all those um, environmental enrichness factors Um, we might think about using products like fellaway so feline pheromones things like that that are going to um, hopefully make the cat less stressed i should say um because we should that other brands were available but i don't know if other brands are available or not but let's just say that there may be other brands of feline pheromones available um okay good so my last question for you before um well i guess one thing we have to say is that obviously if they have well if they have recurrent episodes and the owners don't want surgical intervention then we may be facing euthanasia as the kindest option the most reasonable option if they have recurrence of signs despite surgery whether those signs are related to obstruction or not we may still find ourselves in a situation where some of these cats end up being euthanized because for various reasons it's Mm -hmm. considered to be the the most the most reasonable thing to do um i guess what i wanted to ask you as a final question then was let's say i've just acquired a neutered male cat from a rescue center um he's you know one years old good body condition nice and trim at the moment all that um i bring him to see you for a health check and i ask you what i can do to try and stop my cat from developing urethral obstruction what are you going to suggest to me well, I think if this cat's not had any previous clinical signs, I don't know that I'd change anything for this cat. Um, if there was one thing I'd do, it would probably be a wet diet. 
um, just in terms of um, making sure that um, uh, you've got um, good hydration at all times and that the cat's producing um, uh, plenty of urine. But, um, no, I, I mean, I, I don't know that I would make any... So, bold recommendations because I just don't think that we know how to prevent this from happening. So okay. I don't know that you can. So um, I guess a couple of things I want to ask you. One was um, I guess weight, weight control is a sort of a yeah. given, right? But we suggest okay. that anyway. Yeah. But but, um, but, I, but the other thing that um, we haven't really talked about then is sort of urinary diets. Yeah. They haven't really featured in our conversation so far. And I guess um, what's What's the take on urinary diets? I mean, you haven't said to use them. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I guess the, I guess the the issue is that we don't really have great evidence that even if we started your said one year old cat on a urinary diet, that we would be able to prevent him from having FLUTD episodes. I guess what we're what we're trying to do when we do prescribe those diets would be reducing um, struvite crystal form etc and that's only one component of why these cats get feline lower urinary tract obstructions mm. so um it's by no means that the only thing and the, and the, there's not supreme evidence that that's going to prevent them either so um it's 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 a conundrum um i think the presence or absence of crystals in urine can be very difficult to assess um it's important i think to look down the microscope yourself in the practice because we run into all the problems of samples that are just submitted to external labs or which spend time in the fridge where crystal formation or crystals disappearing can just be a component of how we've been handling the yeah. urine sample etc so um it's certainly something that we can try to manage but we see a number of owners that come in very fixated on whether or not there were crystals present in the urine or not. And um, it, it's really just one very potentially minor component of what's going on. And so what's the, what's the deal with them? You know, we used to say, didn't we, I think that struvite stones were more common and then oxalate became more common and then now maybe they're equal and it depends what paper you look at and all that kind of stuff. I mean, are we using diets to try and manipulate any of that? Or are we sort of saying, well... Um, well, I guess um, at the moment I would say that certainly in the QMH we see more calcium oxalate stones than we would see struvites in, in cats in particular. Um, so um, calcium oxalate are not going to be dietary responsive. So again, my main recommendation if they're stone formers um, would be a wet diet having dealt with the stones. Um, for your struvite then you might consider a diet, um, but uh, actually, we don't see them very often. Um, dogs, we definitely do, but that's a whole different kettle of fish, and then we're looking for UTIs. Interesting. Um, okay, cool. I, I'm going <laughs> to leave you alone. You survived a very long time, which is fantastic. Um, I'm guessing there's nothing else that you, that you want to add at this juncture that we haven't... Um, I think we know we've said already that we've, by necessity, coursed through a number of things that people are welcome to get in touch about, and Absolutely. we can elaborate yeah, on, um, because I know that you know we've just fleetingly mentioned a few things like the diet thing for example that um yeah. that we might need to uh, 
to provide some more feedback on. But uh, if you've got nothing else that you want to say, no, I mean I think from a from a medical perspective, to me, it's it's all about communicating to the clients. This is a, a an emergency, but ultimately in, informing them that it that this when it happens once, it's not necessarily going to be the last time it happens, and um, making sure that they recognise what the clinical signs for their cat might be. And as Dom has said, um, those clinical signs can be very variable. We think of a, a typically straining cat that's in and out of its litter box and yowling, but that's not always the case so um, getting owners to recognize what those signs were so that they present them to us um, as soon as possible I think is is really important yeah and um, I think you know from from all the emergency work I've done that people are very um any male cat <laughs> that's straining gets definitely recommended to come down but I tend to as I said already if you've got a male cat and it's doing anything that's a bit weird um, you might want to come down all right cool excellent and um, to the listeners as always then do feel free to get in touch and uh, provide your feedback in the usual ways um and also obviously let me know if there are any other topics you would really like a podcast on so you can email me directly at schassani at rbc.ac.uk you can use the royal veterinary college's facebook page um where there's an album that contains information about the podcast or you can tweet at royal vet college using the hashtag saclinpod and until next time then do take care of yourselves bye bye